Hello and welcome to this remote sermon podcast. It's good to be with you all. If you've read J.R.R. Tolkien's book, The Hobbit, you might remember a pivotal moment in the story. It happens when Bilbo and the dwarves finally get to the lonely mountain where the dragon smog lives, and Bilbo goes into a dark tunnel that leads to the dragon's lair. The dwarves have not gone on with him. He's alone and it's dark, and he's starting to wish he never set foot on this whole journey. Suddenly, he begins to sweat as he feels the heat of the dragon and sees its red glow at the end of the tunnel. Tolkien writes, It was at this point that Bilbo stopped. Going on from there was the bravest thing he ever did. The tremendous things that happened afterward were as nothing compared to it. He fought the real battle in the tunnel alone before he ever saw the vast danger that lay in wait. During this Lent season, we're in a sermon series that's going through the Stations of the Cross, where each week we're invited not just to watch the sufferings of Jesus from afar, but to enter into them, to contemplate them together. This week, we're on the second station, the Garden of Gethsemane. And this garden is for Jesus a dark tunnel moment. He's alone and sweating. He's realizing what he's in for. And like Bilbo in the tunnel, it's here in the garden that Jesus fights the real battle. It's here that we get a glimpse of what the cross meant for him. What was that experience like for Jesus? And how does it inform how we deal with struggles in our lives? Let's begin by reading our passage from Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 36. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here, while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again for the second time he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. First, what was this experience like for Jesus? What was the nature of his suffering? This is happening near midnight, the night before he's going to die. He's just had the Last Supper and goes now to the Garden of Gethsemane, which was basically an olive grove. Gethsemane literally means oil press. Oil presses worked back then by using a big stone to crush olives into paste. Then that paste was tightly squeezed three times to bleed the oil out. Gethsemane is literally a place of crushing. Now, the book of John tells us that this was a place Jesus went to often, presumably to pray. He knows Judas will be able to find him there. 
He asks his disciples to come with him. He feels a need for companionship, and yet we see his increasing isolation. It's mapped out in the numbers. Commentators think Jesus had about 120 disciples left around that time. He then eats the Last Supper with 12. After Judas leaves, he goes to the garden with 11. He asks eight to stay at the garden entrance. He takes only three with him inside. Then he goes about a stone's throw away from those three to pray. And then something happens to him. Matthew writes, began to be. Something begins that he's not really expecting. The book of Mark adds that he was astonished. What begins is difficult to translate. Among the four Gospels, there are four Greek words that are used to describe what he feels. They are translated along the lines of distressed, troubled, and sad. But what they really imply is an extremity of those emotions. Something like struck with terror, weighed down with depression, violently grieved. Jesus was in a kind of agony that felt like wrestling. The word used here is the same one used to describe a gymnastic exercise or the way wrestlers competed in the Olympic Games. Luke, the physician, tells us he was drenched with sweat, even sweating clots of blood. This is a medical condition called hematidrosis. And uh, okay, as an eye doctor, I don't actually know anything about that, but I googled it. It's in the literature. It's rare but not impossible for someone in a state of shock. What is causing this agony for Jesus? I mean, he knows he's going to die. He's been going around telling everybody that. But something becomes real an experience for him here. It's this cup. The cup in ancient cultures meant an ordeal. It was often how people were executed. The most famous example, perhaps being Socrates, who drank a cup of poison. In the Old Testament, the cup meant God's divine wrath. Ezekiel 23 says, You shall drink a cup of horror and desolation. You shall drink it and drain it out and tear your breasts. Isaiah 51 says, You have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, the cup of staggering. The cup refers to the wrath of God that human evil deserves, and somehow Jesus suddenly begins to experience what this means, and it's so bad he says he feels like he's going to die on the spot, and Jesus is not a man who is prone to exaggeration. No one's flogging him here, not yet. No one's putting nails through his body. Yet Jesus is feeling a kind of horror and pain that shows us that the cross is about so much more than just physical suffering. Think about it. Jesus, more than anyone, has unbroken, perfect fellowship with God, and he's had that for all eternity. He comes to this familiar place to connect with God and instead finds himself facing and perhaps even experiencing being forsaken by God. This is the hell he will experience on the cross, the hell that is a soul separated from God under God's wrath, and that's almost worse than all the physical suffering. It leaves him staggering and torn apart. And here's the question, why is this happening to him now? Look, a lot of things you say, I'm going to do it. And then you do it, but fine, it's a lot harder than you expected, but it's too late to back out. Kind of like having a baby. 
If you say, I'm going to go die on the cross, and if once you get there, you find it's a lot harder than you thought, you're nailed. You're not going anywhere. But you realize what's happening now. It's dark. It's isolated. No one's awake. Even your accountability buddies are asleep. Judas is arriving at any moment with the handcuffs, but he's not there yet. And it's then that Jesus is starting to experience it, to really experience what he's in for at the cross. At that moment, it would have been so easy to find a way out. And do you realize that at the precise moment when he has the most agonizing experience of what's in store, at the precise moment when he's tempted with the easiest out, it's at that moment that he's seeing how sinful even his closest disciples were, how they couldn't even stay awake, which, by the way, wasn't only an ask Jesus was making as a friend. That night was the Passover, the night of vigil, where by rabbinic law, they were supposed to stay awake. Matthew was writing for a Jewish audience who would have known this. The disciples were failing Jesus as a friend and failing to keep the law. These were the people he would be dying for. And yet, He chooses to drink the cup. And we know from this moment, more perhaps than from any other, that this was his own choice. In John 10, 17, Jesus says of his life, no one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. Jonathan Edwards writes a great sermon about all this, which you can find online. It's called Christ's Agony. He writes, Then his taking that cup and bearing such dreadful sufferings was properly his own act by an explicit choice. And so his love to sinners in that choice of his was the more wonderful as also his obedience to God in it. The fact that Jesus made this radically voluntary choice at this precise moment tells us so much about his love for sinners. It's one thing to love someone when it doesn't cost you anything. It's another thing to love someone when you not only suspect, but fully know the horror of what it's going to cost you. It's one thing to love someone who's likable or gives you what you need. It's another thing to love someone when you know how deeply they failed you. Jesus loves you like that. In that dark garden, alone in that dark struggle, with his eyes wide open to what it meant, he made that choice for you. No one on earth loves you like that. And that's why we walk this way of suffering with Jesus. Because the more we understand what his agony was, how much it cost him to make that choice, the more we begin to experience ourselves how much he really does love us. Now let's take a look at what we learn here about how to handle crushing times in our own lives. The first thing I want to say is that Gethsemane times are to be expected if we follow Jesus. Look, when was the last time Jesus asked these three disciples, Peter, James, and John, to go away with him by themselves? It was back in chapter 17 where they saw the transfiguration of Jesus. There they saw Jesus transfigured with glory and light. And here they're seeing him transfigured with sorrow and darkness, but both are equally a part of the spiritual journey. What is your Gethsemane? What trial are you going through that feels like it's just going to crush you? Maybe it's watching your child go through something you can't control. Maybe it's suffering through singleness or infertility. 
Maybe it's a depression or anxiety that you just can't shake. Maybe it's fear about what's happening or what might happen in the world right now. Maybe it's working through an area of woundedness from your past. Maybe you're facing persecution, dealing with chronic pain or illness, seeing something difficult coming up that you know you've got to get through. Maybe it's a period of intense loneliness, which I think a lot of us have experienced this pandemic. Maybe it's a season when God feels absent or silent in your life. What is your Gethsemane? What struggles find you when you're alone and in the dark? When we're in those places, we wrestle with the same temptations that Jesus did. We can be tempted to blame or criticize others as Jesus could have blamed his disciples. We can lash out, become bitter for what people have that we don't, or blame them or God for what they should have done. We can also be tempted to find an easy out, just like Jesus could have. We can escape through numbing behaviors like overspending, overeating, or overfunctioning, staying crazy busy. We can escape through excessive daydreaming or fantasizing or by scrolling through social media or binge watching something. Our screens are always around and it's so easy to use them as a default escape without even realizing it. These things aren't always bad, but the key is to look at how we feel afterwards. Numbing behaviors leave us paralyzed, less able to participate in life, and they tend to draw us into unhealthy cycles of behavior. In contrast, look at how Jesus leaves his time in Gethsemane. He is able to go on. He's calm, even peaceful. What does he do? He is present in his emotions. He expresses them, he wrestles with them, and he does it all in God's presence. That's the key. He prays. You know, I'm just so convicted by how many ways I will handle a struggle rather than take it to God. I will journal it, analyze it, read books on it, Google it, discuss it, mope about it, analyze it some more, and then maybe it'll occur to me to pray about it. But the first thing Jesus does here is pray. And his prayer is so interesting because, see, when we're in these moments, we tend to either feel like we need to stuff it all down and keep it together, or we just want to rant at God. Jesus does neither. He is completely honest with God about how he feels, and yet he is completely surrendered to God about what happens. Jesus is completely honest with God about how he feels. He says, I don't want to do this, but he's also completely surrendered to God about what happens. He says, not what I will, but what you will. Let's look a little more at how to pray with honesty and with surrender. First, we pray with honesty. I've been reading through a great book on prayer by Richard Foster, and in it he talks about a kind of prayer called simple prayer. In simple prayer, we don't see prayer as something we need to master. We don't worry about finding the right words. We don't overanalyze our motives. We don't pretend to be more holy or pure than we are. We simply come as we are before a loving Father. That's how Jesus comes to God here. Mark tells us that in Gethsemane, Jesus prays, Abba, Father. Foster writes, in the same way that a small child cannot draw a bad picture, so a child of God cannot offer a bad prayer. When my kids bring me their drawings, I'm not like, eh, why don't you correct those proportions, then bring it back. It is not possible for them to draw a bad picture. I love it simply because they drew it. And it's like that when we go to God, our Father. How do we do it? 
we simply tell God what we're feeling. We tell him where we are. We talk with him about our struggle. We express our confusion or sadness. We might complain or argue or yell or cry, and that's all okay. Hebrews 5.7 tells us that in Gethsemane, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Simple prayer is actually the most common form of prayer in the Bible. It's the one that we begin with and the one we come back to again and again as Jesus did here in Gethsemane. Secondly, in times of struggle, we pray with surrender. This is what Foster calls the prayer of relinquishment. It's a prayer that moves us from struggling to surrender, where we face our need for control and then ask God through his grace to help us release our will to his will. One way to walk ourselves through this is to go with Jesus into the garden. Take this text back out and read it. Stay awake and watch. See Jesus' sorrow. See the struggle in his soul. Let yourself be sad too. Struggle with him too. And then speak his words as your own. Not my will, but yours be done. Ask God to help you interpret those words for your own situation. It's hard, but God can give us the strength we need. Do you notice there's a slight difference between Jesus' first prayer and his second one? The first time he prays, let this cup pass from me. The second time he prays, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. The first time the passing of the cup is by not drinking it. The second time the passing of the cup is by drinking. The second time you get more of a sense of surrender. What has happened between the first and second prayers? Luke tells us that after the first prayer, there appeared to him an angel from heaven strengthening him. God sends an angel to strengthen Jesus right there in Gethsemane. And the rest of Hebrews 5-7 tells us Jesus offered up prayers and supplications and he was heard. God did not answer Jesus' prayer by changing the circumstances or really through any audible answer that we know of. God seems silent, but he did strengthen Jesus. He did hear Jesus. He hears us too, and he can strengthen us too. More than that, he transforms us. Foster writes, Remember, we are dealing with the crucifixion of the will, not the obliteration of the will. Crucifixion always has resurrection tied to it. God is not destroying the will, but transforming it so that over a process of time and experience, we can freely will what God wills. Ultimately, when we choose to surrender our will, we find ourselves not obliterated, but transformed. Over time, the surrender feels less like losing something and more like gaining something. It feels less like a hardship to choose and more like something to desire. There's a real peace and strength that God can give us. We see this in Jesus as he goes on to walk the way of suffering without hesitation, as we'll see in the coming weeks. In the end, Bilbo fights his battle in the dark tunnel, choosing to come out and face the dragon. And this ends up having implications far beyond that moment. His journey to the lonely mountain and back sets the stage for another journey his nephew Frodo will make, one which changes the course of history for Middle-earth forever. The same is true of Gethsemane. Jesus' choice changes the world forever. The story in Genesis begins with a man in a garden who says about a tree, my will be done. 
And the story pivots here when another man in another garden says about another tree, your will be done. And because of that, we don't ever have to be alone in the dark tunnel of our struggles. We can believe that Jesus loves us. We can pray our struggles to God with honesty and surrender. And we can receive strength for crushing times in our own lives. Let's pray. God, I pray for whoever may be listening right now, that if they're going through a time of struggle, temptation, or loneliness, they would know that you understand and you love them as no one else can. Help them to bring their struggle to you with honesty and with surrender. We thank you for what you did for us, for the choice that you made for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.